Hi, welcome to Eight Words or Less. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, Eight Words or Less. Some of you know me already. I am Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. In episode seven, we looked at Roger Fisher and William Urey's book, Getting to Yes. James, who is our other host, came up with a central message, which if I can remember in eight words or less was optimize or optimizing outcomes through principled negotiations. And so on the back of that episode, lots of our listeners reached out and they wanted to ask more questions, particularly given what's happening in the world at the moment around the practicalities or just going into a little bit more depth into some of the gold, as I call it, that came out of the episode. Thank you, Sammy. And uh, on the back of those requests, we are very fortunate to be joined today um, by Professor Nehru Sivanathan. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right here. I was sort of banking on the fact that Sammy was going to say that, so I wasn't paying as much attention. Um, But uh, we're very fortunate to have Professor Neri with us today. Um, And I just want to start, Professor, by saying a big thank you uh, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be talking again, albeit in in, in slightly different circumstances. But to get your views and opinions on some of these questions, um, I know how valuable your time is and very grateful you can spare some of it for us. Perhaps to kick off, could you tell us a bit about your for our listeners and, and particularly perhaps say how you came across this book and what, what impact it had on you. Sure, James. Wonderful to be connected again, albeit outside of the classroom. Great to be on the podcast with you and Sammy. So I'm on the faculty at the London Business School. I've now uh, approaching my 12th year, I believe. And much of sort of what I research tends to kind of fall under the rubric of decision-making, social psychology, um, and specifically I look at things like social hierarchy, status, and power, uh, but also have uh, looked at negotiations and other contexts broadly around decision-making. But related to the podcast, um, I've also been teaching the negotiations and bargaining elective that's offered to MBA students as well as students from other programs uh, in my entirety here at the London Business School, but also prior institutions. So one of the first books I read was Getting to Yes. I thought it did a phenomenal job of sort of really capturing much of the tension, the apprehension that people have around negotiation. And I thought it highlighted a, a new path or presented a fresh look to some, not necessarily the academics, but certainly to students in how they should approach negotiations. And so this has been now the book that I give as a pre-reading. I did that Kellogg about 13 years ago, 14 years ago, and continue to do so now. And this was a book that was published in 1981. It's an oldie, but uh, remains a goodie. Fantastic. Thank you, Nero. Well, we have a few questions for you today from our listeners. The first one is from Mo Mansour in Oman. And Mo says, it's mentioned in the podcast that emotions can be stripped out of a negotiation process. And Mo says, some might argue that emotions can be a very powerful tool that can actually be leveraged. Nero, what are your views on the role of emotions in negotiation? And perhaps which are the scenarios that might necessitate emotions to play a bigger role? It's, it's a wonderful question. The first point is, obviously, emotions play a critical role. Uh, they play a critical role in the way in which we process information, uh, the decisions that we make, uh, how we sort of execute that both at the bargaining table, but also your counterpart's interpretation of your emotions, mood, etc. 
Now, the, the reason why the book talks about sort of stripping away emotions is that oftentimes emotions and certainly the negative emotions have a negative impact on negotiator outcomes. And so in order to sort of going back to the earlier comment of trying to help people be a more principled negotiators, the advice there was to exit emotions out of the equation. And I think if you think through some of the emotions that typically play a role, such as, for instance, anxiety, one of the first questions I ask is, you know, how many people in the room feel if they're a good, if not great negotiator? And usually sort of one brave soul raises his or her hand. And, you know, these apprehensions about negotiations come from sort of this view that, you know, it's very sort of conflictual, it's a contentious process. And invariably, there there's some anxiety around negotiations. And much of the research shows that uh, if you as a negotiator have anxiety, and, and certainly when your counterpart views or attributes your reactions to be one of an anxious negotiator, it has negative impact. Now, there are positive emotions at the bargaining table, and they generally yield positive outcomes. You tend to create more value, but oftentimes those are not the ones that naturally are brought to the table, if you will. And so that's where, at least in the book, there's this sort of suggestion of trying to separate out the emotions. It's not to say that they don't exist or they don't play a role, but rather to separate it out. Because we also know that some of the negative emotions have a way of impacting the processing of information. Uh, They impact even memory. So you might misremember or favorably remember past interactions. Now, where emotions play a significant role tends to be in conflicts and disputes. People come to the table angry. People come to the table wanting to enact some sort of retribution, etc. And this is where emotions probably play the largest role and sort of capture the largest variance in determining the outcome. And in these instances, you most certainly want to try and extract emotions out of the equation. And this actually links in quite nicely to one of the questions from one of our listeners in the UAE, Melanie, who was asking specifically related to the world post-COVID-19, and in particular with employees coming back to work and some of the negotiations that will have to happen around things like flexible working and the potential for these to be quite an emotional discussion for there to be some conflict. So, Nero, in practical terms, what tips would you recommend we can take to extract emotion from the equation? Right. So this is, I should preface this by saying it is much, much easier said than done. Oftentimes, we have the tendency to mimic the behaviors we see in front of us, right? So when you see someone smile at you when you're walking down the street, you're sort of hardwired to automatically smile, right? If you ever want to give that a test next time you're walking down the street, frown at someone and see what type (laughs) of reaction you see across the street. So Oftentimes, you can't necessarily control the emotions of others, but what you can do is control your own or broadly control the process. Sometimes just simply allowing people to go through the process of expressing those emotions helps mitigate it. Just by simply not responding or specifically responding in kind helps reduce some of those negative emotions. It's certainly much of the work shows that threats, as if they don't 
result in sort of conflict spirals where you sort of respond with threats, oftentimes dissipate, and you could sort of refocus that negotiation back to interest. I was just going to say, I've seen this go horribly wrong when somebody in the negotiation has said, well, I can see that you're quite agitated. And with that judgment and the assumption, the person has responded, I'm not agitated. And so I think it's just important to manage your state and the space that you enter the negotiation, but be aware of labeling or naming something that you're seeing. I love that. Create space for people to go through their process. That's right. And oftentimes it's a cathartic process. They're doing it because they are angry. And and it's one of those things where they just need to get it out on the table and then you could sort of move on. Uh, you want to be very careful, as you said, in labeling it in a manner that they could take offense. And of course, very quickly, things get into conflict spirals. But what threats do is they push kind of the neurological buttons that want you to retaliate. And so even just not retaliating goes a long way in pushing the negotiation further. The other uh, simple tip, James, that I often see where emotions are at play, or specifically in conflict, is whether you could ensure that your conversations are prospective in nature rather than retrospective. Oftentimes, conflicts escalate when you're yelling and I say, but James, you did this, or your admin did that. Why did you authorize that payment? Or why did we agree on X? Versus statements, which is clearly, this has brought about negative consequences for you. We could sit here and sort of yell for the next hour, but we don't move forward towards helping ensure that you stay solvent. Right, So conversations about what could we do moving forward or what is an outcome that we could get to rather than focusing on the past is another, if you will, kind of a practical strategy to shift oftentimes emotions that are tied to the history, right? something that went wrong prior to a focus on the future and around one's interests. Amazing. No, thank you. So I think actually that links quite nicely into the next question, uh, which we, we've grouped from uh, both Yasser in Qatar and Olga in Switzerland. It was talking about the fact that these days uh, a lot of our negotiations and discussions are happening through virtual meetings. In this new environment, how can we adapt given the body language, given that what we've just been talking about emotions and being receptive to that is so important and maybe harder to do in a virtual world? Uh, yeah, excellent question, and it's certainly very timely as we spend a lot of our times on video calls and other online platforms. So I think if I were to step back, even sort of pre-COVID, the thing to keep in mind in sort of any sort of social interaction or the medium on which you're having that interaction, it has two dimensions. One is the degree to which that communication is asynchronous in nature versus synchronous. And the second dimension is the degree to which it has both audio cues and visual cues, right? So, for instance, a voicemail has audio cues but lacks visual cues, and it's asynchronous, right? So I would leave a message for Sammy, he would listen to it, and then he might respond a day later. Or email, on the other hand, neither has audio or visual cues, and it's asynchronous. Whereas face-to-face is both synchronous and gives you audio cues and visual cues. What much of the research shows is that, turns out, negotiations for them to be optimal requires both audio and visual cues 
and it needs to be asynchronous in nature, right? So essentially, face-to-face -face affords you that. Now, in this current scenario, and even before COVID, there's a tendency, especially when businesses and your interactions are geographically dispersed, to send off a quick email to say, James, here's my offer on this new contract, right? Because you're trying to coordinate time differences, schedules, etc. There's less friction by sending off an email. My strong advice would be not to carry negotiations on platforms that are devoid of both audio and visual cues and are asynchronous in nature. Now, video conferences are probably as close as possible to face-to-face -to -face interactions because it turns out a lot of those small cues, the tonal changes, the intonations that you make, the facial reactions to offers, play a critical role in your ability to sort of create and maximize deals and value at the bargaining table. So I guess the very strong and kind of clear advice from this work is try your very best to whatever platform you choose, that it's synchronous and also has audio visual cues. And perhaps an example that kind of captures this to me about sort of the importance of these cues and how people interpret that interaction kind of goes back to 1960, which was, I think, the very first presidential debate in the U.S. where the debate was televised, right? Before, if you wanted to listen to a debate, you tuned into your radio. This was between Nixon Kennedy, right? and Kennedy. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> you remember this uh, example. Yeah. <laughs> Those who heard the debate on radio thought Nixon was the clear winner, right? He was eloquent. His arguments were on point, etc. Those who watched it on television thought Kennedy was a clear winner. He was more charming, came across as leader-like, etc. And as you know, uh, Kennedy went on to win. This is not to say that you know this was the only reason Kennedy won, but I share that example to highlight to you, factually, the content was the same. Yet people's interpretation of that individual or that form of communication was altered by the medium. So again, I, I think as we enter into sort of this remote working and virtual space, what's important to keep in mind is where you fall on that spectrum of synchronicity and whether you're maximizing both audio and visual cues. Fascinating. Thank you. Well, Charlotte Copeland in the UK, one of our listeners, she gave some great feedback. She said the podcast has made her reconsider her approach to negotiations, both at work and at home, which is fantastic. Nero, I'm a star student, so I've been doing some research on the four principles for getting to yes. My understanding is that they're in order. So the first one is separate the people from the problem. The second is focus on interests rather than positions. The third is generate a variety of options before settling on an agreement. And the fourth one is insist that the agreement be based on objective criteria. Charlotte's question is, are the four key elements of those principal negotiations intentionally in an order? Her instinct is to start with objective criteria element, but she notices that's the fourth one. Great question, Sammy. I think as the book is written, it is written in the form of which is most important. And to give some context, if you remember the approach to negotiations or people's apprehension, this was kind of a tug of war that you're getting into, right? I'm getting into a negotiation with you and I, and we're going to fight over these resources. And what program on negotiations and the various scholars, and obviously now the book tried to do is to get people to have a different mindset to 
negotiation. One of the first things I tell my students oftentimes is going into a negotiation to adopt the mindset of just wanting to learn. Your primary goal in negotiation should be about learning about your counterpart and learning about their interests. It's not to sort of dive in and, and work out a deal. If you could set that as a mindset that allows you to approach that negotiation with a very different lens, then let's just hash it out and come to an agreement. And so if you sort of view that as sort of a starting point, you could see why for them, separating people from the problem was an important one. Because oftentimes, it's when you get those two conflated, you get into conflict spirals, you tend to get more positional, both parties dig their heels into the ground. And the second one, and I think this is kind of the core of this book and why I continue to assign it, is this idea of separating interest and positions. I think it's you had the great story of the two sisters and the orange, right? It's a sort of a stylized example, but it very nicely shows that oftentimes we dig our heels into positions instead of unpacking interests. I think oftentimes we talk very briefly about sort of kids when two kids are fighting for a toy, you don't usually just break the toy in half and give each kid uh, half the toy. You sort of figure out, look, why don't you play with it now? The other the other child plays with it later. But I think in negotiations, we oftentimes fall victim to this trap. So now going specifically to the question, and the reason why the objective is towards the end is that if you start off with sort of let's come up with the formal number or formal process with regards to how we evaluate profits and losses, how we evaluate volume, et cetera, it's more likely to cause you to fall back into this issue around positions rather than interest. So if you start with the framework of learning about the other side rather than let's focus on the specificity of what constitutes PNL, what constitutes scope, you could find yourself back into that argument around positions, and which is why I think it's important, but it's it's a step that I think you should pre-plan for, but not necessarily one start the conversation with. I love that. Seeing this as an opportunity to learn about the other person and then start following the four principles, it's more likely that you will get to yes. Indeed. Two sort of goals to set for yourself is one, can I ensure that I am the most prepared individual in that room? Mm -hmm. And two, I should enter the negotiation with the mindset of I'm here to learn. Those in many ways are kind of the the 30,000 feet above sort of approach to the negotiation, but they set the path in an almost a path dependent manner for you to then focus on some of these more proximal elements, which is around focusing on interest versus position, separating people from the problem, etc. Fantastic. I think that's a perfect segue, Nero, into the final question, which is, if you, obviously, our podcast is called Eight Words or Less. So if you had to summarize this book in, into your central message of eight words or less, what would it be? Right. So I, I give, give this some thought. And so I think if I were to summarize this book, and, it, and this is a statement that I uh, often also mention in, in, in class and, and sessions with clients, etc., is that negotiation is a joint problem-solving task, which I think if I've done my math correctly, those are seven <laughs> words. So the larger context I often tell people is that negotiation is not a tug of war, but rather treated as a joint problem-solving task. It's two individuals who've come together to try and solve this puzzle that hopefully at the end of it leaves both parties in a better position. So it is not a contentious battle. Don't approach it with the mindset that it's a battle or a fight or, or a war, but rather it's Sammy and I coming together to put our minds together 
to solve this puzzle. And so, so eight words or less would be, as a, again, negotiation is a joint problem-solving task. Wow. <laughs> so negotiation is a joint problem-solving task. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Nero, all of our listeners, of course. Use a hashtag, eight words or less, to share your comments, experiences. If you haven't yet listened to the Getting to Yes episode, subscribe and you'll be able to download it and the other episodes. We also have some more bonus episodes planned before season two. Thanks again. Bye for now.